Revelation uh, 6 speaks of four horsemen, four riders who usher in the tribulation period. And so, uh, sort of playing off of that, I have entitled uh, tonight's session, The uh, Four Horsemen of the Reformation. Someone already asked me earlier, uh, why four? And um, the answer is because uh, that's as many as I think we could cover this evening, plus um, there weren't five horsemen in Revelation 6. And I really like that title. I came up with that first, and so... So we, we have to stay with four. Sorry. And then on your handout, you can see who those four are. And we're only going to be able to look most briefly at their lives. As it says there in the little box on your handout, a brief introduction to the lives of the Reformers and their contribution to rediscovering biblical Christianity. And I think that's the, the point that I hope to be able to go away with tonight, to have you go away with is that these men were all significantly used by God, and they were very flawed men, exceedingly flawed. In fact, by today's standards, they were scandalous. We, uh, As we undertake to um, explain their lives a little bit, you will be scratching your head. You will think, how can they get some things so right and other things so wrong? Well, they were, like all of us, a product of their time. And by the grace of God, they uh, did recover the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said this morning, from the encrustments of medieval Roman Catholicism, which had uh, all but obscured the saving gospel. It had been so bound up in a works-based righteousness that it, um, it needed to be discovered. And God used these significant men to do just that. So, jumping in, let's look first at uh, Martin Luther. I've given him to you here in the order of their birth, and uh, we'll pretty much stay with that routine. Pope uh, Leo X called him a wild boar who had invaded the Lord's vineyard. And in 1520, he excommunicated him from the Roman Catholic Church. Not to be outdone, Luther called the Pope the Antichrist, and uh, a flea in the coat of God. <laughs> Martin Luther had an amazing uh, ability to speak um, directly and at times quite harshly. And if you just, as you understand the product of his, uh, that he is the product of his time and what, uh, what God did in his life, you, you kind of understand why he was like he was. He was bold. He was outspoken. He was a critic of the religious establishment of his day. He stood almost single-handedly against the entire weight of the Holy Roman Empire. Something that is uh, just incredible when you think about it. Son of a coal miner, born in, uh, in Eisleben, Germany. His father sent him off to study law. His father was relatively well-to-do. And he sent Luther off to study law that he might be a lawyer and earn a, a, a reputable, uh, have a reputable uh, way of supporting himself and his family. While Luther was walking down the road one day in the middle of a thunderstorm, bolt of lightning struck very close to him and knocking him to the ground. And it terrified him. And what terrified him is that he thought he might die. As I say, he was a product of his time. And in, and in that time, the fear of God was immense upon the people. And Luther was deathly afraid of dying. Because he knew that God was holy, God was just, and that there was no way he measured up. And so if he were to die and to be ushered into the presence of a holy God, he knew he had no hope. And so there, laying flat on the ground, he, he cried out to the patron saint of his father, St. Anne, and, and he said, I will become a monk. And that's just what he did. He dropped out of law school, and he went off and joined an Augustinian uh, order, a monastery, and he became a monk. And while a monk there, he drove his superior crazy. And the reason he drove him crazy is because Luther was constantly in the confessional. 
he would spend hours at a time in the confessional confessing his sin of thought, word, and deed before God, and then he would receive his, his penance and his absolution, and he would leave the confessional, and he'd be on his way back down the hall to his cell, and he would turn and have to come back and confess some more because it was an, another thought that flashed through his mind or something he forgot earlier. And in fact, they, uh, they thought he was a, a gold bricker, a loafer, because he spent so much time in that confessional. But Luther was just in dread of God. In fact, his superior said to him, Martin, do you love God? He said, love God, I hate God. Because he saw God as a judge, an unyielding judge. And there was nothing that Luther could do to, to gain relief. He was sent in 1510 to Rome, the center of it all, and there he, he participated in the medieval Roman system whereby one might earn absolution for his soul. He, he climbed the steps, kissing everyone as he went, but he was so horrified by the corruption, the immorality, and the mechanical nature of Christianity while there in Rome that he was completely turned off by it. And he returned back to the uh, monastery. Well, the, uh, the, uh, his superior there noticed that he had a sharp mind. He was a brilliant man. In fact, you know what? I was supposed to do this earlier, so let me do this. I want to do that for you. How's that, huh? There you go. Kind of a funny-looking guy, isn't he? Anyway, I'll just leave that up there so you can look at him. He, uh, his superiors noticed he had a brilliant mind. And indeed, he was a, a good law student. And so they, his, uh, his superiors sent him off to uh, Wittenberg University, where he studied. And there he ultimately earned his doctor of theology in 1512 and began to teach the Bible at that school. And that's really where it began to open up for Luther. Well, in 1515, preparing to, uh, to preach... Through Paul's epistle to the Romans, he came to Romans 1.17 that says, The just shall live by faith. And he was tormented by what does that verse mean? And so he pondered it over and over and over in his mind. And finally, he had an epiphany. God gave him an understanding of that verse. And that was that it is the righteousness of God that is, that is by faith lent to us. And that just opened it up for him. At that point, he says himself that he, he felt himself, quote, reborn and to have gone through the doors of paradise. Martin Luther became a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when that happened, his life was completely turned upside down. Because from that moment on... He could not tolerate the works-based righteousness that completely surrounded him. He had discovered the truth, and he, he had no patience for those who tried to obscure it. And so he faithfully, as the people's priest there in Wittenberg, would expound the scriptures, preach the scriptures. He would write tracts and commentaries, and he would just be enamored with the gospel. Well, he rose from sort of local um, prominence to international prominence when on October 31st, 1517, and that's why we mark it as Reformation Sunday, October 31st. By the way, it's not Halloween. I mean, it is, but I, I prefer to be Reformation uh, Day. But on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted a set of... Um, what are called uh, theses, or their statements of uh, to be disputed among the academic community. What had happened was that Roman Catholicism, as I say, is, was encrusted and still is in a in a works-based theology in which indulgences—that is, the ability to purchase uh, a pardon from your time in purgatory—was big business. The Roman system says that at your baptism, you are infused with saving grace. 
And then when you sin after that, you kill that grace. And it has to be rekindled according to means. And these means are their sacraments. And as the, you perform the sacraments, the, the grace is rekindled in you and you maintain your salvation, but you still accumulate debt that has to be repaid. And that debt is repaid in purgatory. The time spent in purgatory is of indefinite length, but it, it adds into the millions of years. I mean, it's a long time and it's a place of suffering and torment. And while uh, your uh, loved ones are there in purgatory, there are certain things you can do that can shorten their stay. Indulgences. And so it's a perfect way to raise money for the church. And by this time, the 16th century, that's exactly what it was. Leo X was building a basilica called St. Peter's. And he needed money. And he needed a lot of money. And it was, he couldn't resist the temptation to go to the sale of indulgences to raise the kind of funds that he needed. And there was a, a German monk, uh, John Tetzel, who was particularly good at raising money with indulgences. Tetzel had a little saying, a little jingle that went, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And uh, that sold. And so he would show up in town and he would, they would have a, a, a dramatic reenactment of purgatory and the pain and the suffering that was going on there. And then he would appeal to the crowd to buy the indulgences for their loved ones, parents, siblings, those kinds of things. And that money, he got his cut on it, and the, and the, the local German um, uh, religious official got his cut, but half of the money went back to Rome to build St. Peter's Basilica. Well, Luther couldn't stand it. It was over the top for him. And so he posted these, these theses, 95 of them, these points of disputation. Now, Luther was not looking to separate himself from the Roman Catholic Church. Luther did not want to become a Protestant. That sort of happened to him. What he was looking to do was to reform the church. And we know that to be an absolute fact because he posted the 95 Thesis in Latin, not in German. And they were posted on the church door at Wittenberg University, which was would be like a bulletin board today. In fact, you know, I was trying to think of a modern equivalent. It would be like having a web blog, I guess you'd say, and, and you know, putting it out there for people to read and, and feed back to him with discussion. Well, overnight, these 95 theses were translated into German and they just moved out through the country and ignited an absolute firestorm. When Luther failed to get the response that he was expecting from the Pope, that is a reform of this system... And in fact, he got hostility back in return. Then Luther just became more and more caustic. He was excommunicated, as I say, in 1520. A uh, <clears throat> papal bull, ex Serge Domine, is the name of it. And a papal bull is, is just a, uh, uh, <clears throat> it refers to the uh, bulla. It's from Latin. It's the seal that, that is applied to the, to the papal statement, excommunicating Luther. Well, when the uh, papal bull arrived in Wittenberg, uh, Luther burned it publicly. And so that sort of set the stage for the confrontation. He was too far down the road of evangelicalism to turn back. There was no way he could turn back. I, uh, I have a list here, and, and uh, let me read a few of them for you of the 95 Thesis. That he posted. For example, number 50, he says, Christians must be taught that if the Pope knew the, exact, the exactions of the preachers of indulgences, he would rather have St. Peter's Basilica reduced to ashes than built with the skin and flesh and bone of his sheep. 
Christians are to be taught that the Pope, as is his duty, would desire to give of his own substance to those poor men, from many of whom certain sellers of pardons are extracting money, that to this end he would even, if need be, sell the Basilica of St. Peter. See, that was his point, is that the Pope doesn't know what's going on. And if he really knew, then he wouldn't do these things. Number 81, he says, This wanton preaching of pardons makes it hard even for learned men to defend the honor of the Pope against calumny, or at least against the shrewd questions of the laity. They ask, Why does not the Pope empty purgatory on account of most holy charity and the great need of souls, the most righteous of causes, seeing that he redeems an infinite number of souls on account of sordid money given for the erection of a basilica, which is a most trivial cause. Why does the Pope just empty the place? You know, he has the power to do it. Why does he just, all the, all the income free, let everybody out? Or number 83, why do requiems and anniversaries of the departed continue and why does he not return the benefactions offered on their behalf or suffer them to be taken back since it is now wrong to pay for the redeemed? Number 86, the Pope's riches at this day far exceed the wealth of the richest millionaires. Cannot he therefore build one single basilica of St. Peter out of his own money rather than out of the money of the faithful poor? So you can see where Luther's coming from on this. He, he really believed that when the Pope heard about what was going on, that he would be indignant about it. Well, he was, he was indignant, all right. <laughs> what he was indignant about was that Luther was, was ruining a good thing. And so he was excommunicated. 1521, he was called to... The Diet at Worms, where he stood before Charles V, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He had been given a safe conduct by Charles V to come there, although he was a heretic at this time and was under sentence of death. And he came there and they piled up his books and his writings before him. And they said, Luther, Martin Luther, will you recant? Luther stood there and somewhat trembling he asked if he could have a day to think about it. So they granted him a day, and that night in his, his little cell, his little bedroom area, he was just tormented by this. He felt like Satan was personally attacking him. It was a moment of weakness. But he prayed, and at the end of that evening, the next day he entered back into the Diet of Worms, and he made his famous statement, right? Unless I am convicted by sacred scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Amen. That's boldness. That is incredible boldness. That is Holy Spirit-empowered boldness. Well, in the massive confusion, Luther was able basically to slip away. And as he was headed on the way, his way back to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped by agents of the prince, Frederick the Wise, and carried away to a castle where he was hidden away in the top floor under an alias name because they would have killed him. And there he was in seclusion and he spent time working on translating the Bible from Greek into the German language. And Luther helped create, really, the German language by his translation of the scriptures. Martin Luther was an amazing, amazing man. Productive writer, really prolific all kinds of commentaries and books. If you read his writings, he is very caustic. There's a book called The Bondage of the Will, written in 1525, written uh, to Erasmus in response to Erasmus's uh, diatribe on free will, where Erasmus was basically saying that, uh, that 
man can, is free of his will to turn to God or not turn to God. Luther responded to him with his book, The Bondage of the Will. And in it, he says, Erasmus, you stupid idiot. And then he begins to, to dismantle his arguments. And that's the way Luther was. I mean, if we were to read his stuff today, you know, you just shake your head. So caustic, so blunt, so direct. Some might even say arrogant. But he was a man for the time. It takes a certain level of arrogance, doesn't it, to stand up against the weight of the religious authorities and the political authorities of your day? And to say the whole world is wrong and you got it right? That's an amazing thing. Luther ultimately married. He had children. He lived out his days till his natural death. He rediscovered the gospel. That's the legacy of Martin Luther, is the rediscovery of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. That is, that it is God who reaches out and saves. It is not God saving in cooperation with man's efforts. There is much you could criticize Luther over. Some of his writings, particularly his later writings, are very anti-Semitic. They're, uh, they're, they're just amazing to read. He was a man who, um, who had many, many character flaws. But he was a man who was mightily used of God to recover the gospel. And that leads us to this fellow here. Ulrich Zwingli. And you notice on your handout, I put a little quote, I guess you'd say, next to each of these names. Uh, the first one is Luther's quote himself. The other three I made up. Okay? So I'm quoting myself uh, in that. Luther is my conscience is captive to the word of God, right? It's his famous statement there at the Diet of Worms. Ulrich Zwingli what you can say that sort of summarizes his life is he was unable to finish what he started. Zwingli was a Swiss reformer. His uh, conversion to a Christianity came sometime around between 1516 and 1519. He was a humanist in the good sense of the word, not secular humanist like we know today. He was a religious humanist. He was a man of, of um, powerful intellect, and a good classical education. He, he read in the original languages. He was a priest. And when he would, became the people's priest at the church at Zurich in Switzerland, he disregarded the Catholic lectionary and he began to preach expositorily through the New Testament, starting with the Gospel of Matthew. Well, that uh, popped open people's eyes, as you might imagine. Instead of the, the routine and ritual of, of uh, Catholic Mass given in Latin, he began to, to just preach the pure Word of God. And that brought change. That brought change. He had a number of young men that, that were attracted to him, and so he would meet with them weekly. And, they, and um, these young men also knew the, the original languages. They, too, had been schooled in Greek and Hebrew and so forth. And so they would meet and they would have a, like a little Bible study themselves together, reading in the original languages and then discussing what does the Scripture mean. And as they began to do that, their eyes became popped open with, with the reality that the religious system of their day was far different from the New Testament. Well, Luther was a, um, what I would call a more reluctant reformer. Luther's idea of reformation, unlike uh, Luther in the sense that he was going to take on the world, Zw or Zwingli rather, Zwingli's idea, that's who I meant to talk about. Who did I say before that? Luther? Yeah, I'm a little confused. Zwingli, that's who we're talking about. This guy. Zwingli was more reluctant. That's what I'm trying to say. His methodology was to to uh, preach against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church of his day and then wait till it stirred up a controversy among the people. And then it would come before the, the town fathers, the, the, uh, the, the uh, selectmen, if you will, the, the, um, 
the civil authorities of his day, and they would have a little public hearing. And if the authorities agreed with Zwingli's case, then that reform would be made there in Zurich. And if they didn't agree, then they wouldn't reform that particular area. And so that's how Zwingli went about trying to bring his reformation. Preach the scriptures, create a controversy, let it come to a public trial, public disputation, give his evidence, let the people give their contrary evidence, and then let the secular authorities decide. Just as a side note here, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, and a number of others were what you would call a magisterial reformer. A magisterial reformer. And what that means is, and it's important, particularly when we talk about Zwingli, of a magisterial reformer is that they believe that the magistrate, that is the civil authority, <clears throat> was uh, responsible to enforce Christian um, rule among the people. And so a, a religious crime, adultery, heresy, uh, anything like that, would also be a civil crime, punishable by the civil magistrates. Beyond that, they believed in what they called a Christian nation. And to understand this, you have to go way back to Constantine, the first Christian emperor. Now, you know, coming out of the New Testament, the church is a persecuted minority, right? When you read through the book of Acts and you get that idea, you read 2 Timothy, Paul's in a Roman you know, prison, a Mamertine prison, waiting to be beheaded. And that was indeed what the first 300 years, or 300 years of Christianity looked like. They were a persecuted minority. There were 10 great waves of persecution. Well, that all ended when Constantine became emperor. At that point, Christianity went from a persecuted minority to a state-sponsored religion. And Constantine proclaimed himself as the first Christian emperor. And so now, all the citizens of the Roman Empire were no longer pagan, they were Christian. I remember seeing a cartoon a long, long time ago. It shows this infidel... And there's a crusader, and he's on his horse, and he's got his lance, and the tip of the lance is right in the guy's chest. And the little caption says, tell me more about your God. I'm very interested. <laughs> you know? That's the, the means and the mechanism, really, that what happened. It became illegal not to be a Christian. The persecuted minority became the persecuting majority. And when that happened, citizenship... And membership in the Christian church became intertwined. Intertwined. And you entered into the... You became a citizen of the nation, or the empire, through physical birth. You entered in spiritually through baptism. And so you were sprinkled as an infant. And that brought you into the system. The problem with all of that is that you have a mixed multitude, don't you? You have true believers and you have unbelievers all mixed together, and yet you, everybody is, quote, a Christian because everybody was baptized into the system. Magisterial reformers. These reformers, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, as we'll see, could not separate themselves from that mindset, so they very much use the civil magistrates to effect their reformation. And Zwingli literally submitted it to them for their approval or disapproval. Zwingli is um, perhaps best known for two things, really. Number one is the, uh, is the concentration or focus on the doctrine of providence. Zwingli was very much an advocate of the doctrine of providence and, and did a lot to, uh, to sort of make that doctrine, old people aware of that doctrine again in his day. But more than that, is he's 
probably best known for his view on the Lord's Supper. It is Zwingli who, through his interpretation of the New Testament, his understanding of the, of the scriptures, uh, determined that what when we take the Lord's Supper together, what we're celebrating is a memorial meal. The Roman Catholic system calls for what is known as transubstantiation. That is that the bread and the cup, although they don't visibly change, they remain looking like bread and cup, actually do change and become the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, when the Mass is celebrated, even today, it is a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ every time the Mass occurs. That's transubstantiation. Luther rejected it, as did Zwingli, as did Calvin, as did all the Reformers. But, but Zwingli understood it as a memorial meal. That what will you do this in memory of me? That it is bread and that it is wine and it is done as a memorial, just like baptism, remembering what Jesus Christ had done for you. In 1529, there was a, a meeting held. And the meeting was uh, between Martin Luther and some of his cohorts and um, Ulrich, uh, Ulrich Zwingli and his. And the purpose of the meeting was to unite the Reformation in, in Switzerland and southern Germany. And when they met there, the meeting was arranged by uh, Philip of Hesse. And they agreed on 14 out of 15 points of theology. And so it looked good. It looked like there would be some, uh, some unity to the Reformation here. But they were unable to agree over the Lord's Supper. Luther's understanding of it was that when Jesus said, This is my body, that, he, that there's no way around that statement. And in fact, it became ugly. Almost like, um, remember Nikita Khrushchev when at the United Nations was banging his shoe on the table? You, well, you young people don't remember that, but <laughs> some of you fossils out there, you remember that, right? Well, that's kind of the way Luther got over the disputation. He just kept saying, and I wish I could say it in German, but he just kept saying over and over again, this is my body, this is my body, and he just wouldn't move off that point. And so the hope of uniting the Reformation in Switzerland and southern Germany was forever um, put away. And the Lutheran uh, and Reformed Church have never been able to unite since that day. So that was a sad day. It's called the Marburg Colloquy. And I think it's one of the saddest points of the Reformation is they were unable to come together over that point. Luther said that Christ, his, his understanding was consubstantiation. He said that Christ is, is physically present, and this is his words, quote, in, under, and with the elements. So Engley said Christ is in heaven, thus communion is a symbol, a sign, or a memorial. And, of course, Calvin came along, and he says that uh, it is a real reception of the body and blood of Christ, but only in a spiritual sense. And so that's the classic Reformed view of communion. I say to you that uh, Zwingli was unable to finish what he started, and that's, this is the, the sad part of this man's life. Remember I told you he gathered a group of students around him, and there they would explore the scriptures together, study it in the Greek, study it in the Hebrew, and talk about it. But Zwingli's way of doing things, submitting it to the, to the civil authorities was these men could not tolerate, these young men. They said, Zwingli, you've taught us to follow the scriptures. Now we must follow the scriptures wherever it leads us. And Zwingli said, no, 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 we can't do that because we run a risk of upsetting the whole Reformation here. If we move too quickly, too fast, we'll alienate the civil authorities, and all the gain that we've made will be undone. So you have to remember that they're, they're still surrounded by predominant Roman Catholicism that would seek to wipe out these little enclaves, these little uh, city-states almost. And so Zwingli was unwilling to, to 
follow through on where the Bible was leading them. These young Turks, these young bucks, they were fired up. They didn't want to wait. They didn't want to be patient. And so they wanted to forge ahead. Zwingli had got them all started. He just wasn't willing to go the whole way with them. He was unwilling to finish the Reformation that he began. Zwingli uh, became a bitter enemy of his young disciples. He actually uh, goaded the civil authorities into outlawing and declaring their views heresy, and he began to persecute them and personally advocated their deaths. Swingley himself was killed as a relative young man, 1531, participating in a battle between uh, the Protestant forces of Zurich and the Catholic forces of another city whose name I don't recall. And he died on the battlefield. And that leads us to our third. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump beyond that and I'm going to pick up Calvin here and let's just finish the magisterial reformers and then we'll come back. So let me, uh, let me give you a picture of another guy. A funny looking guy too, huh? John Calvin. Like uh, Luther, John Calvin also studied law. And he brought that training into his later uh, studies and writings in theology. By his own, uh, his own testimony, he says at age 24, quote, God subdued and brought my heart to docility. That is, he, God wrestled him to the ground, is the way Calvin saw it. In 1533, he was born in 15, uh, 1509. In 1533, he was forced to flee his native France where he was born and brought up. And the reason he had to flee is because there was a persecution coming on Protestants, and he was, by this time, clearly a Protestant. He was a brilliant young man and uh, basically a recluse. What he wanted more than anything was to go away somewhere quietly and study theology and write. That's what he wanted to do with his life. And so he... In fact, by, uh, when he was only 27 years old, he wrote the, fir- the first copy of his Institutes, which is probably the most famous work he's written, uh, was available. It's only 140 pages long at that time. Now it's 1,500. He revised it over his lifetime a few, few times and kind of increased its length. But the original Calvin's Institutes is only 140 pages long, written when he was 27. Well, he was uh, trying to uh, make it to a, to a safe city where he could have a life of, of uh, obscurity when he, by providence, uh, met this uh, man by the name of uh, Farel, who imposed on him to go with him to Geneva in Switzerland and to, uh, to pastor the church there. And Calvin said, no, 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 I'm not interested. And, and Pharrell said that if you don't do this, God will hound you the rest of your life. Nothing like saying, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you, you know. <laughs> it's funny, I was just talking to him this morning. He didn't say anything about it. You know? So Pharrell imposed upon Calvin to go there to Geneva. And so that's where he went. He ended up in Geneva. And it was, I mean, you've got to see it as the providence of God. He was just... He was passing through, and that's what happened. Well, in Geneva, John Calvin preached three services daily, wrote commentaries on 49 books of the Bible, expanded his institutes to its current you know, 1,500 pages, and he did all of this despite the fact that he suffered intensely from migraine headaches, gout, tuberculosis, Stomach disorders, gallstones. I mean, the man was a wreck. That's why he looks like he does. You know? 
It's just a wreck. The writers say that he broke his health at age 30. Died when he was 55. He only slept four hours a day. He only took one meal a day because, uh, because of his stomach problems. So I guess that's how you preach three services a day and do all the rest of the stuff. You don't sleep and you don't eat. And he didn't. They say that Erasmus laid the egg of the Reformation in his Greek New Testament. Luther hatched it. Well, John Calvin trained it to maturity. Calvin had a brilliant legal mind, and he applied it to the study of theology. John Calvin was a theologian par excellence. He was a discipler. He was a man who thought deeply and intently about the implications of Scripture. And Calvin's as he's known here, the rediscovering of the sovereignty of God, that was his theme. He became just enamored with God's sovereignty and he sought to apply it to every aspect of life. If Ephesians 1 is really true and that God is working out his plan for the ages, then John Calvin believed that we could, in cooperation with God, be used of him to work out that plan in every aspect of life including government and economics and, and politics and every other area. And so that's who Calvin was. I have a quote here that I want to read you. It's from a book called John Calvin's Influence on the Western World. It says, At bottom, however, it was because Calvin had penetrated so profoundly into the depths of the Christian worldview that he was able to develop a proper sense of history and of its dynamics that he had understood as Augustine before him the seminal meaning of the biblical doctrine of creation, that he acknowledged the sovereignty and providence of God over all things so that nothing escaped God's creator will. And it made it possible for him to see that this will extends also to history and to that which is central to history, man's forming activity, which is the heart of cultural development. John Calvin and Calvinism has probably had the greatest impact upon Western civilization, certainly of any man that I could think of. We are all beholding to John Calvin to one degree or another and those that followed him in the implications of what he wrote about. Well, Calvin was there in Geneva. And while in, in Geneva, he sought to transform that city into a Christian community to live in accordance with the scriptures. And thousands of pilgrims flocked to Geneva from the Reformation as they were forced to flee from their native lands. And they would come to Calvin's Geneva, and it was John Knox who spent time there, the great Scottish reformer, who said that it was the most perfect Christian society this side of heaven. Again, you read a lot about Calvin and the they talk about him being so, you know, tyrannical and, and they talk about him hating men and, and just being, you know, kind of a, uh, an unpleasant man. And yet those that knew him said just the opposite. Apparently he had big brown eyes. I don't know if you can see him there. And uh, depending whether he was pleased or displeased, they, could, they looked like, you know, doe eyes or they would flash with anger. Writers do say that as he progressed in age, that his health problems caused him to be increasingly short-tempered. And so if you were on his wrong side, he could let you have it pretty good. Probably the biggest black mark on Calvin's life is the burning of Michael Savitas. Savitas was a what we would call a Unitarian today. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He was a heretic. He was an unbeliever. He had already been declared a heretic and was under uh, death sentence by the Catholic Church. And he wrote to Calvin and said he was coming to, to Geneva, and Calvin said, don't come. But he came anyway. Actually showed up in the church where Calvin was preaching. I was that for boldness. Well, he was arrested, and he was tried, and he was found guilty, and he was burned. 
And Calvin testified at his trial against him. And Calvin was in favor of his death penalty, although John Calvin, to his credit, visited him in his prison cell and preached the gospel to him and also petitioned the court that he would be beheaded as a more humane form of execution. Calvin was overruled and Civitas was burned at the stake. Now, that's hard for us to understand how a great Christian man could be in favor of the public execution of a heretic. But they lived in different times. As they say, they were magisterial reformers. A religious crime like heresy was a civil crime. It was considered to be dangerous, to be seditious, to be the murderer of men's souls. Now, I don't advocate death to heretics, you know, believe me. But in one sense, uh, we take things really lightly. We do not consider the eternal implications of heresy. We live in a time where everybody's entitled to their own opinion, and you got your truth, and I got my truth, and everybody's got truth, right? Beloved, uh, John himself says, when a false teacher comes to your door, you're not to give them the time of day, you're not to greet them, you're not to allow them in. You're not to wish them God's speed because they murder people's souls. And that's the way it was seen. Servetus was seen as a soul murderer. And thus he deserved, in their mind, the execution that he received. But there's no doubt about it. It's a black spot, a black mark on Calvin's life. And that leads me to the third, or the, well, the fourth horseman tonight. And I don't have a picture of this horseman. And the reason I don't have a picture is, is he didn't live very long. He didn't live very long. His name is Conrad Grable. There are a number that I could have chosen. I chose him. And the reason I chose him is because of the fact that he was at the very epicenter of what's known as the radical arm of the Reformation. Zwingli had discipled these young men. One of the young men that Zwingli had discipled was a man by the name of Conrad Grable. You can look and see when he was born and when he died. He's only 28 years old. He was a young man. Amazing insight for one so young. We'll get to that in a moment. He was well-educated himself, lived a very immoral life in Paris as a student, actually participated in a drunken brawl in which someone was killed. He had to flee. But somewhere along the way, God got a hold of Grable and saved him. And Grable met up with Zwingli, and he was enamored with Zwingli's interest and ability in studying the scriptures in the original languages. And so Grable applied his powerful intellect as well to that. He, along with another young man by the name of Felix Mance, and a third one by the name of uh, George Blaurock, were Zwingli's star pupils. And as they were studying the scriptures together, they came to an amazing insight and their amazing insight is, on transparency I'm about to put here, their amazing insight was that the church is a voluntary organization of believers. And that entrance into the church of Jesus Christ comes by faith, not by physical birth. That sets the world on its ear. As far as, the, as uh, Europe was concerned, you entered in at birth. You were physically born into the society. You were baptized as a baby into the church, and you were a Christian. And these men said, no, when I read the New Testament, what I understand the New Testament to say is that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. 
and that we make a, a expression of commitment to Jesus Christ. And it is then that we enter into his church. See how this thing works. And so here we have the, the magisterial reformers on this side. They call Latin corpus Christianum, that is the body of Christianity. And here it is at the base. Members equal subjects. The members of the church are the subjects of the kingdom. And you enter in, as I say, through infant baptism. Over them, you have these leaders that are ordained to administer the sacraments, which are the means of grace in the system. And of course, above it all is Jesus Christ, the resurrected head. And you are held together by your affirmation of the creeds that bind your conscience to the church. The church has set out its theology in creed, creedal form. As you affirm the creed, that binds you to the church into which you entered at birth. That's the system. Whereas the Anabaptists said, no, wait a minute. When I read the New Testament, that's not what I see. When I read the New Testament, I see a corpus Christi. That is the body of Christ is what I see. And at the bottom, members equal believers, not subjects. And you enter into this through belief in Jesus Christ, which you make public through your baptism. There are leaders. They are these ordained servants, ordained in recognition of their gifts and skills. Jesus Christ being the resurrected head. Now we look at that and we say, well, of course. Of course. Well, this is heresy in the 16th century. This is absolute heresy. This is a threat to society. This is to rip apart the bonds of civilization at a time when the, when the Turks, when the, when the uh, Muslims are pressing on the borders of Western Europe, seeking to overrun it with Islam. Something that um, maybe today we can understand a little bit of. And so to say that society can, is no longer going to be bound together in this way and, and, and other beliefs that they had, such as uh, a um, refusal to take and bear arms, a pacifism, a refusal, uh, and the reason is because they said it is unlawful for the government to use force to bind men's consciences, which is what the government did. And they said, therefore, we will not participate in the, in the military part of the government. And so they were seen as seditious, unwilling to defend their country, their homeland against the, the attack of Islam. And they were turning the whole system on its head with their theology. Well, this came to a head in Zurich. In fact, let me before that, I've got a quote here I want to read you by Grable, just in his own words. It says, quote, We were listeners to Zwingli's sermons and readers of his writings, but one day we took the Bible itself in hand and were taught better. That's how they saw it. Okay? There was this growing rift between them and Zwingli. As they began to insist on this, they said, this is what the New Testament says. And he said, ah, now go there. Grable and his wife had a child. They refused to bring the child to church to be baptized. The reason they said that they would not is because it was against their conscience to enter into this system that they believed was was ungodly, unlawful, against the New Testament. And so they held back their child from baptism. On January 18, 1525, Zwingli and the city council ruled that anyone refusing infant baptism for his children would be expelled from the city. Three days later, they ruled that independent Bible studies were also banned. Persecution began to intensify. On January 21st, 1525, three men met together, Conrad Grable, 
Felix Mance and George Blaurock, a former Roman Catholic priest. Three young men who had become absolutely captured by the Word of God. And there in the home of Mance's mother, in direct defiance of the orders of the city council, George Blaurock urged Grable, Conrad Grable, to baptize him. And Grable took a pitcher of water and poured it over his head and baptized him. Then Blaurock, in turn, baptized Grable and Mance. That act set them irreparably on a collision course with the city council and with Zwingli. They had to flee the city. They spent the next 18 months on the run. They were arrested and sentenced to life uh, in prison. Somewhat mysteriously, the prison door got left open one night, and they all three escaped. And they fled. Mance was rearrested in 1526. He was drowned by the authorities in the Lamont River outside Zurich on January 25th. 1527. They named his enemies, named them Anti-Baptists, that is, again, baptizers. And they rejected that title for themselves. They said, no, we're not again baptizers. We got wet as a baby, but we were not baptized. We've only been baptized once. But the civil authorities, goaded on by Zwingli, said, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. They tied a rock around them and threw them over the side of the boat. They drowned them. That was the preferred means of persecution of the Anabaptists, and many were drowned, although many were also burned alive. Blaurock himself was burned at the stake in 1529. Conrad Grable died from the plague while in exile in the summer of 1526. There's no pictures of these young reformers. As I say, they didn't live long, and they were really nobodies. They didn't leave writings for future historians to read. There's no well-developed system of theology. And that's somewhat easy to understand because they were constantly on the run, moving from place to place. They were absolutely aggressive in their preaching. Blaurock himself would show up in a church right in the middle of a service and stand up and, and start preaching about salvation by grace through faith alone and that you had, to be, you, know, you had to be baptized as a believer and then you enter into the church and you must flee from this heretical system. It doesn't make you very popular when you do that kind of stuff. They left no well-developed system of theology. As I say, they were on the run. Their leadership was constantly being executed. So new leaders were rising up, and they were untrained men. They weren't seminary graduates or any of that kind of thing. And so it took a long time before Anabaptist theology was codified in any real form. The modern descendants of the Anabaptists would be the Mennonites. Today, those would be well-known brethren groups would come from them. I think that there are, uh, there are problems in some of their theology, and I think some of it stems from the fact that they, they never thought long and hard enough about the implications of the issues. They kind of had the central truth, and they clung to that. They very much um, emphasized the practical living of Christianity, uh, good works, um, generosity, caring for people, those kinds of things. Many times they lived somewhat in communes, separated off away from the crowd so that they wouldn't be persecuted any longer. But we owe them an incredible debt because as we sit here, it's kind of like second nature to us that there is a separation of church and state, right? I mean, we don't want to be part of a state church. Isn't that true? We, want to, we are part of what's known as the free church. That's what it's called in Europe, the free church. That is that we are free from state oversight. Our ability to meet here tonight, to worship as we do, to come to the scriptures as, uh, as an individual, you know, um, everyone being a priest, and enter into this voluntary society called Foothill Bible Church, this is very much the legacy of these men who gave, them, gave their lives. 
An amazing insight for one so young. Let's pray. Well, Father, we've moved so very quickly through this, but the process, we've seen enough to know how indebted we are to these men who have gone before us. To Martin Luther, who discovered the gospel, or rediscovered the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. For our indebtedness to Zwingli and his right understanding of the Lord's Supper. To our indebtedness to John Calvin and his incredible systemization of Christian truth. To our indebtedness to Conrad Grable and other early Anabaptists who had the courage to stand up and say that that a church-state marriage is wrong and that indeed the church is made up of individuals who by faith in Jesus Christ have come into the body of Christ. Things that we take so much for granted, our Father, as we stand on the shoulders of these who have gone before us. I thank you for the opportunity today to, to just pause and to remember them and their works. Thanking you for your providential hand in their lives and the encouragement, our Father, that it, it gives to my heart to see how you were able to use such imperfect men to accomplish mighty things. It gives me hope, Lord God, that you might be pleased to use me, even in a little way. Thank you for our time together this evening. We ask your blessing upon us in the week to come. Let us walk in the faith as those who have gone before us have. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.